Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Hello, Lauren. How are you? Hey, how are you? Very well. Welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Welcome, Lauren. How are you going? Where, where are you calling from today? Um, I'm actually at my mum's house in Brisbane. <laughs> awesome. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Not too far because you guys are based on the Gold Coast, aren't you? No, no, I, I'm in Brisbane. I'm in. I'm calling from my uh, humble abode in Spring Hill. Oh, okay. And Jeremy's in Wanaka. Wanaka, New Zealand. Good old COVID. You know? Beautiful. There's uh, <laughs> a nice, beautiful Lake Wanaka or the town beautiful. Wanaka. No, 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 yeah, Lake Wanaka. Yeah, yeah, that's where the town is. No, it is beautiful, and I've yeah spent a lot of time holidaying here over the, the last forty years, but I've never lived here. So you go from Sydney with five million odd pe- people to. Wanaka with 5,000. So if you're, yeah. not, if you're not related to half of them, you still sort of are in some way. And anyway, first world problems, it's lovely. Yeah. Anyway. Over the previous couple of months, I think you've been out and about though. I think you're, were you in the field for a lot of December? Yeah, late last year, I've been a couple of times out in the field. So I've been pretty lucky. That's not related to marine debris work. That's a different seabird project with UTAS. All right, cool. And so would I be correct in saying that Denise is your boss? At CSIRO, yeah. Very cool. No, we, we, we've known Denise now for a long time. She is one of the most inspirational humans and so positive when faced with negativity from research and stuff. I mean, we're, we're, um, we're great friends of hers and, and we're really stoked to have you on the show. So, Lauren, give us a bit of a backstory. How did you come about to be doing what you're doing from a young age? What were you into? Give us your, your 101 backstory. Oh, geez. <laughs> going all the way back. Oh, mate, we're going all the way back. Uh, I suppose like many kids, I've always liked animals and wildlife. That's a pretty common thing for little kids to be into in Australia where we've got so many unique, cool animals. And so with that interest, I suppose naturally a lot of kids grow up being concerned about animals, animal welfare and protecting animals and protecting wildlife and sort of had that interest all the way up through university. I did a undergraduate degree at the University of Queensland on zoology and ecology. 
My first job after doing that was for Brisbane City Council working at the Boondle Wetland Centre. Wow, yeah. Yeah, environmental ed there. And this is sort of where I got interested in marine debris as an issue. This is going back early 2010, I think I started working there. We used to do a lot of cleanups um, as part of the environmental education programs as well as Clean Up Australia Day. And one of the things that really struck me was that every time we'd do a cleanup, you'd go out there the next day into the wetlands and what do you know, all the plastic's back. <laughs> you may as well have never have been there at all. You couldn't even tell that we'd been through there picking up every last Coke can or plastic bag or bait bag the previous day. It was absolutely full of plastic. And that's what sort of got me interested in the first place. What wetland was this? Uh, Boondle Wetlands. Boondle wet- Wetland. You sound like you know it, Bradley. I, I ride my push bike through there most weeks. Yeah. So it's a, it's a nice little loop. You ride from sort of the sea, I guess where I'm in Brisbane, and, and you ride out to Boondle and basically do a loop through the wetlands and come back. Yeah. Um, bikeways pretty much the whole time. But Boondle Wetlands is a beautiful spot. It is. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I love that bikeway. They've updated the um, education centre since I was there. We went there recently and they've got this really lovely big flash wetland centre with great interpretation signs and everything. Um, but when I was there, it was a little bit different. It was a like an old Queenslander house, house and we had our office space at the back and the, uh, a very small display space sort of in the front of it that just had a couple of like a touch table with birds' nests and shells and wasp nests, oh, the empty ones, of course, <laughs> and things like that, a few posters. It's really come a long way when I went there the other day and saw how much it had changed. And we should point out that Boondle Wetlands, I guess, is sort of just immediately adjacent to uh, beautiful Moreton Bay. Yes. Uh, which is kind of the receiving environment for a, a big chunk of southeast Queensland, including Brisbane. So I guess that begs the question, Lauren, where's all this litter coming from that you were sort of picking up repeatedly? Yeah, out of the rivers, really. I mean, the Boondle Wetlands are sitting on the Nudgee Creek, so a lot of it mm. was coming upstream, but some of it would have been coming out from Moreton Bay as well. So the Brisbane River is a very large river that feeds straight into Moreton Bay. It flows through the sea, basically right next to the CBD of Brisbane and some of the most densely populated areas are right along it. So up until recently, a fair bit of plastic. I remember even when I was a uni student watching plastic water bottles floating down the Brisbane River. One Mm. of the members of our team has recently done a study looking at the influence of the water refill stations at South Bank Mm. along the river and how that has affected the reduction of plastic bottles floating down the Brisbane River and into the Morden Mm. Bay. Morden Bay is also a very globally significant site for a number of threatened marine species, including sea turtles, dugongs. It's home to a lot of seabirds as well. So, ecologically important area. The Boondle Wetlands itself is a Ramsar site because of its importance for migratory birds. And speaking of birds, from what I understand, you've got a bit of a lifetime passion for birds in particular. Like obviously Australia's got... How do you know this? How do you stalk people who know this? I do my research, Jeremy. Yeah, some of us don't just rock up. (laughs) You just saw the shirt. (laughs) No, but I remember actually one of the, your CSIRO sort of star profile page has got you holding a very large seabird. Yeah. Uh, and it actually does refer to you having a lifelong passion for, for birds. I so. do, and I, I still do to this day. So um, it's an yeah. unfortunate gannet in that uh, photo. So that was photo was taken during my honours at UQ. I was working out of the Morden Bay Research Station mm. 
on um, Stradbroke Island under the guidance of Dr. Kathy Townsend, who's really oh, yeah. was a pioneering plastic pollution researcher in this area. She did a lot of work on um, plastic ingestion in sea turtles. And I think she still continues some of that work even now in the as part of the University of the Sunshine Coast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we actually had Kathy on uh, our podcast, I think, last year. And if anyone's missed that, please dial into that one. That was a cracker. Kathy's a superstar. But obviously, getting back to Boondor Wetlands, you're, you're doing all these litter cleanups. Is that how you sort of got inspired and started thinking more about what is this issue all about? Well, what's going on? I think that's that particular is what caused the penny to drop for me Mm. on how much plastic actually is in the marine environment and how even though we would go and do these, I mean, we'd have entire teams of school students marching through the mud up to your knees, picking out pieces of plastic and just the fact that it was getting replenished within a day of us picking it up really sort of opened my eyes to how big this problem was. And if the, I mean, this is in a developed country where we've got, you know, good waste management infrastructure and all of that. And and still here, we're having this issue. And that really got me curious about what is the impact happening on wildlife. And it was also about this time 10 years ago that the images that were taken on an island that you've probably familiar with in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Midway Island, were starting to emerge. And a photographer there was taking photos of albatrosses on this island, the chicks full of plastic. And I was seeing these images, seeing the plastic in the wetlands here at Boondall, looking at all the birds that I was interested in anyway, that lived in Boondle, the cormorants and the migratory shorebirds and thinking, geez, if if the middle of the Pacific is having this issue, what what is the issue here in Australia in our own Warden Bay? And that's when I sort of got on the phone to Kathy. Um, she'd been looking at sea turtles and asked her about birds. Does she know anything about the impact that this plastic is having on birds? And it hadn't really been looked at. So that was sort of where it all started. And subsequently, a PhD was born? Yeah, so after that, we were really lucky in Brisbane here. A lot of organisations helped us out. We got on the phone to a lot of wildlife carers and wildlife hospitals. So Crumbin Wildlife Sanctuary, Wildlife Hospital on the Gold Coast, the Australia Zoo Wildlife Hospital on the Sunshine Coast, the RSPCA Wildlife Hospital out at, now they're out at Wacol, as well as some local bird rescuers. There's a Nadenhamiad Pelican and Seabird Rescue, sort of out at the Redlands there, but they sort of service all around the Brisbane area. Australian Seabird Rescue, did they get yeah, involved? Yeah, Australian Seabird Rescue at Ballina. They were on the list as well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of our former podcast guests as well, Ollie Pitt from Australian Seabird Rescue. And obviously the Twinnies as well. The Twinnies, where are they? Are they on the Sunshine Yeah, Coast, we, we talked to them. The, they weren't involved in that particular study, um, but I do know of them as well on the Sunshine mm. Coast. Yeah. Okay, so you've got all these people helping out you've got a light bulb moment moment you've gone through and got your phd brad told me before we got on the show um you've done some pretty exciting work and let's face it i'm pretty excited to hear about this you've done a study on thirty thousand or close to thirty thousand beach cleanups from around the world kick us off with that because look we're, we're really excited to hear what you found how did that all come about i mean you're obviously down working in hobart do you want to give the listeners a bit of a prequel to that Yeah, so how this came about was basically this is a brainchild of Denise and Chris and their long-standing professional relationship with a large NGO based out of the US, Ocean Conservancy, and another large NGO, Project Aware, who are now called Paddy Aware. I think they've just had a bit of um, rebranding. So George, who heads Ocean Conservancy, 
Denise and Hannah, who has a sort of large role at Paddy Aware, Project Aware, had been talking some time about these large data sets they have. So for those that don't know, the Ocean Conservancy runs the International Coastal Cleanup. And it's a beach and waterway cleanup program that happens on land, engaging volunteers across more than 100 countries across the world. And every single year, the same time of year, they run a big, big cleanup and they've been collecting the information about what sorts of items people have been picking up in all of these countries around the world year after year after year and are sitting on an absolute goldmine of information Paddy Aware does a comparable sort of cleanup. Uh, it's run throughout the year, though. It's not a one. It's not a one weekend a year thing. It runs throughout. But again, more than a hundred countries, and this is a cleanup that's done voluntarily by scuba divers on the sea floor as a way to sort of give back to the marine environment that many scuba divers uh, love and enjoy. And so they do a similar thing: pick up a lot of rubbish from the sea floor around the world bring it back up to the boat, sort it out, count the different items, identify what they are and record that data and send it off to the databases. So they got together, had a bit of a chat and basically the project was born where they worked together with CSIRO to analyse some of this information they have because they're interested what are the sort of drivers? Can can we sort of look at all this information and filter out particular patterns to better understand what the plastic pollution problem looks like in different areas of the world. So prior to this, a lot of the information coming out about what causes plastic pollution was very linked to land to sea transmission of plastic through rivers with the sort of most of the information being about big rivers in densely populated parts of the world, especially where there's poor waste management infrastructure, but but not necessarily transporting this plastic from land into the ocean. So we just wanted to have a look at some of these patterns to see see what we can find. So we used global information about all sorts of socioeconomic factors, such as where people are living, how many people are living there, what is the income and the wealth of those particular areas, both at a national scale with gross domestic product, as well as sort of more local scale stuff. How many people are living within one kilometers of a site? How many people are living with five kilometers? How much mismanaged waste is attached to this nation? How much lighting is there at night? How far is the site where these cleanups are conducted from the nearest road? How far are they from the nearest railway station? All this information to have a look at. And we looked at the correlations between how much total rubbish was at each of these sites, as well as the different items that you find. Do you find more cigarette butts in some locations? Do you find more plastic bags at others? To sort of disentangle some of these patterns about where this plastic pollution is coming from. It is, has to be said, this is an incredible body of work. And look, I came across it in, I think it was an article in The Conversation. The article is called, We Analyzed Data from 29,798 Cleanups Around the World to Uncover Some of the World's Worst Litter Hotspots. But there is an associated paper uh, published, uh, and I think, in the Journal of you know, Global Environmental Change or something like yep. that called Socioeconomic Effects on Global Hotspots of Common Debris Items on Land and Seafloor. Um and it has to be said, like the, the data set is incredibly large. Like we're talking about nearly 30,000 data set collected entirely by citizen science, uh, which is amazing from I think about 116 different countries all around the world. 
it's looking at as as you've indicated it's trying to ask i guess to i get a couple of key questions you know where are the global hotspots for pollution density and abundant items on the land and sea and what is the role of geography and socio-economic drivers in explaining these patterns that's a sort of snapshot of i guess the the key questions and the and the methods keen to know now what what were the results of this enormous study some of the results were things that made sense and we probably knew while others were surprising for the biggest outcome that really came out of this paper is that there are hotspots of different items in almost all of the different regions of countries in the world. You can't sort of say that one country is responsible for the world's plastic pollution problems while others are not. Even in developed countries with good waste infrastructure, you still have hotspots for marine debris. So using Australia, for example, Australia had the world's second highest hotspot for fishing line, and that was in the modern bay region. So somewhat if if for people who are familiar with it it's that may not come as a big surprise there's huge amounts of fishing line in here and fishing line as far as litter goes um, for wildlife impacts fishing line's a really big one fishing line things get tangled in it I've seen actually when I used to work at the Boondle Lake uh, wetlands I've seen a raven or a crow swinging from a tree like something out of a horror movie um, with fishing line tangled around its feet from a branch way up in the tree. And I've seen similar entanglements with cockatoos. The seabird and wildlife rescuers see this all the time, entanglements caused by fishing lines. So a really, really serious item. And here we are living in a hotspot driven by, I suppose, the recreational and fishers not not picking up their fishing line, really. Yeah. So it's completely preventable. <laughs> yeah, and obviously you've got, you'd speak for your experience from on Boonda Wetlands, but, you know, in our conversation with Ollie Pitt from uh, Ballina from Australian Seabird Rescue, she said something very similar around the, the impact of fishing lines in her neck of the woods, you know, northern New South Wales mm. and the horrendous impact that has on particularly seabirds. Uh, and they're sort of advocating a campaign around, you know, getting basically recreational fishermen to just make sure they don't leave their fishing lines behind, you know, and and actually appropriately dispose of them. Exactly. And it's not just seabirds. All sorts of wildlife is impacted by fishing Mm. line. I've certainly seen newspaper articles where dolphins have died from um, their fins getting entangled and that causing open wounds which have gotten infected and, you know, beautiful animal like a dolphin, something that most people feel quite a connection to as far as marine wildlife goes. Sea turtles, uh, fishing line can kill them both by entangling them, especially around their fins. Um, sea turtles can swallow fishing line. I heard a horrible story that Kathy Townsend told me one time about a sea turtle that she did a necropsy on. And what had happened is it had swallowed a piece of fishing line and it had gone through the digestive system from one end to the other. And because the line had stretched all of the intestines of that poor animal had gotten basically plied around the stretch piece of fishing line and all entangled and had caused the probably very long and painful death of that sea turtle. So it's a really, really a bad one. But yeah, back back to the results of the study. The biggest result was that that you can't say one country is responsible for the world's plastic pollution. There are hotspots everywhere and those hotspots change depending on what the cultural norms are. Also, 
based on the waste infrastructure of that country. So there were certain things that were associated with litter hotspots more generally. These are urban density, so having urban centres but associated with countries that are low in wealth. So basically cities and built-up areas in countries with low wealth. This is where you found generally the largest hotspots of litter. It's a very localised sort of effect. So you could have a litter hotspot with high high amounts of litter within the same country, perhaps a wealthier area of a city where there was very little litter. So it's not wasn't so much a countrywide problem. They're very localised and associated with sort of poorer regions across lots of different countries. And these were especially associated with plastic types such as food wrappers, plastic bags, as well as things associated with eating out. So drink containers, takeaway containers, straws, and, and that sort of thing. But then other items were associated just with cultural practices, especially. So the biggest example of this is cigarette butts. Cigarette butts were the most numerous type of marine debris counted across the surveys, much more so common in areas where smoking is really common. So that probably doesn't come as a surprise to many people <laughs> that in countries where there's high rates of smoking, you have a lot of cigarette butts. So especially um, Southern Europe, Northern Africa, places like that where there's really high rates of smoking, there was huge amounts of cigarette butts. Again, this is an item that has the potential for wildlife impact. Toxins in cigarette butts can leach into animals if they eat those cigarette butts. And certainly in my time as an honours student, I saw a um, cormorant that had died with the cigarette butts in its stomach. So we didn't do toxicity testing to, to know whether those cigarette butts were the cause of the death of the cormorant, but um, it's, it's a possibility. Yeah, it is staggering. The amount of cigarette butts you see when you're doing beach cleanups, at least in Australia. We've had one of our former guests, Shannon Mead, who's from No More Butts, shout out, who's trying to advocate for, you know, basically a zero butt world in, at least in Australia. And there's a lot of misconceptions just around cigarette butts alone. You know, a lot of people think, oh, they just make it made of paper. Then you think, but hang on, the, the filter isn't. And the filter is perfectly, it's, it's key function is to absorb pollutants. So whilst the cigarette butt filter is pretty damaging, the fact that it acts like a big sponge for other pollutants becomes ingested by a, a, a seabird or turtle, obviously that has the even greater ability to actually cause you know toxic effects to that species. Exactly. And because the filters don't break down so easily, the, the mm. paper on the outside tends to break down quite quickly, but the filter itself does not. If that becomes swallowed by something, it can get stuck in the gut of the animal. And yeah, it's not, not a situation you want wildlife to sort of have to deal with. So I guess this study, I guess, is kind of busting a few myths as well like uh, like the one rhetoric is oh all the pollution's coming from asia uh you know what you're saying is oh no there's pollutant hotspots around the world it's yeah not what we found at all and certainly in australia this is something that i hear all the time i hear people say it i read it in comment sections on newspaper comment sections as well as social media there certainly is a perception in australia that the plastic that is on our beaches comes from asia and it's it's just not true i'll take it one more step i reckon it's environmental racism because yeah. it is it is it's going yeah. not my problem it's their problem when it comes to everyday litter everyone in australia talking if you're in sydney brisbane melbourne they go oh mate we're fine it's just coming from six or seven rivers in asia and to be honest a lot of reports came out initially in the last few years and it's great to hear that your study that you're doing you go well hold on guys what is going on well it's like we've talked about jeremy you know unless you've got data you're just someone with an opinion and the work that lauren and her team have put together they've got a huge data data set 
So they're not just relying on a sort of few anecdotal reports. It's unequivocal, you know, quite robust science and with a huge data set from around the world. Yeah, so ghost nets wasn't wasn't one of the major things analysed, but the example you gave really perfectly fits into the framework of findings that we had in that you have local hotspots where perhaps, um, so certainly in, in Northern Australia, in the Northern Territory, for example, there are hotspots of litter, which is likely coming, for example, from Indonesia. But Australia-wide, that's not the case. And um, Denise led a study a few years ago, actually, where they surveyed every 100 kilometres, I think, of the Australian coastline, walking the beach, picking up plastic, and where possible, finding out where the litter has come from. And you can't always see where the litter's come from, but quite often there are barcodes, there are local brands um, that you can identify. And the finding of their study was that the overwhelming majority of plastic on Australia's coastline was Australian in origin. When Jeremy and I have done various advocacy efforts, speaking, reports, papers, whatever, we are always citing the work of CSIRO, like Denise, yourself, again, without that, you're someone with an opinion. And and to have a CSIRO publication to say unequivocally, the vast majority of plastic or debris on Australian beaches and waterways is from Australia. That's just a scientific fact. It's not just Jeremy and myself speculating. It's a CSIRO heavily researched by very talented people providing us the science that we can essentially advocate with. Yeah, I've got a I've got a plastic bag actually sitting on my desk down in Hobart, which I take to school students. And it's a plastic bag of things that I picked up in about 10 minutes when I went to the beach, not too far from Hobart. And it contains some very Australian items. There's a Vegemite lid, there's a rubber thong and, <laughs> you know, there's no question about where those ones came from. Yeah, yeah. So just to recap, so the cigarette butts were globally the most common item found in the in the sort of cleanups. But you've sort of indicated also that the the type or the most common type of plastic found actually does vary from country to country or from hotspot to hotspot as well. It does. And you find hotspots of all sorts of things. Sometimes they're quite disparate and then sometimes they're clustered. So we talked before, there's a bit of a cluster of cigarette butts around places such as Southern Europe and Northern Africa, but then you find other clusters as well. So for example, in the Philippines, there's a cluster of hotspots for food wrappers. And that that's a local challenge for people in the Philippines to deal with is this, this food wrapper problem because of the cluster of food wrappers in the Philippines. Costa Rica, we found a cluster as well as off Jamaica of plastic bottles. And actually, we found a really interesting um, pattern of beverage drink bottle packaging in tropical areas all throughout the world. So there seemed to be a really, really strong gradient of these hot places around the tropics, lots of beverage bottle waste, uh, which disappeared as you got to approach the poles or sort of colder Mm. countries. So I'm guessing hot weather, cool drinks, and (laughs) in some areas, there's maybe a lack of infrastructure to recycle or to dispose of those plastic bottles. So yeah, there's another interesting pattern that we found and a potential for a solution in those areas, whether it's reusable drink bottles, um, drinking fountains, or or things that can be installed to reduce the impact of plastic beverage bottle litter in those areas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. What particle size are we, are we analyzing within your data set? Are we getting down to microplastics or is that something that we couldn't do because of physical logistics in the field? Because this data set came from citizen science cleanups, mostly the, the items that are in this are items that are visible to the naked yeah. eye and there'd probably be a bias in terms of the larger items. So it doesn't include microplastics where you're getting into the really tiny, tiny stuff, but certainly plastic fragments on beaches were included in this study as well. So they're a really interesting case, the plastic fragments, because these, they're very, plastic fragments are a type of plastic that's very difficult to know where they've come from. And often they're the breakdown product of larger items like buckets and um, crates and things like that that have been floating at sea for a long time. Uh, sometimes decades, it could be a lost, you know, crate off a boat. 10, 20, 30 years ago that's since broken down into little half a centimetre, one centimetre, two centimetre plastic fragments. And the largest concentration of these um, in our studies were on two islands that certainly were not responsible for creating the plastic fragments, but just due to the ocean circulation patterns had massive, massive quantities of them washing up on their beaches. One of them was the Canary Islands in Spain, which you might have seen on the news recently as having those volcanic eruptions. So the Canary Islands is unlucky enough to be situated along an ocean current that delivers all these little fragments of plastics, the sort of stuff that when you're walking along the tide line, you see little coloured specks dumped on the beaches in massive quantities on the Canary Islands. And if you Google plastic Canary Islands, you can see photographs of beaches where it looks like people have just dumped confetti on the shoreline. Wow. There's plastic everywhere. Another location that's unfortunate enough to have this issue is the Hawaiian Islands. And it is not the people of Hawaii that are throwing away buckets and buckets of plastic fragments. But because of the way currents um, sort of move in the certainly the North Pacific Ocean, along the coastline, Pacific coastlines in the Northern Hemisphere, a very, very high densities of human population. And so through time, plastic things that have entered the North Pacific Ocean from these coastlines. So this is the eastern coast of Asia and the western coast of the United States that border the Pacific Ocean. Large amounts of plastic have entered the ocean, broken down through time and congregated in the swirling masses of ocean called the Gyre. So some of the people may have heard of the Great Pacific garbage patch. This is located sort of either side of the Hawaiian Islands and the sort of swirling water mass congregates little and large pieces of plastic, kind of like when you pull the plug out of your sink, that swirling water 
traps plastic and the Hawaiian Islands uh, gets a lot of it dumped on their beaches, which is also part of the reason the wildlife that lives there is heavily affected. The marine wildlife that lives there is also heavily affected by plastic. So those photos that I'd mentioned right at the beginning that sort of partially got me started on this journey of the albatrosses um, full of plastic in Midway Island, which is one of the Hawaiian Islands, are affected by the plastic in this area. And so just getting back to these patterns and trends, looking at this ginormous data set from 116 countries. So from what from what you're saying, you're sort of saying obviously there's ocean currents that impact like little islands in, in, in the in the middle of an ocean stream get more impacted than you know others. But generally speaking, you're seeing more or greater litter densities in areas where you've got, I guess, higher urban densities, so more population. So basically where you've got more people, you've got more uh, pollution, I guess more litter in areas that have lower national wealth, I guess. Is that a fair assumption around the, the general patterns? Around some general patterns, that's fair. And it's not, um, we actually found that the population, the number of people in an area itself wasn't a strong predictor of how much plastic there is. It's more tied to how much infrastructure there is. So right. city areas and um, built up urban areas more so than the, the number of people. So those built up urban areas, especially in areas of low wealth. And these are sprinkled all throughout the world. Every country has it's regions basically where you've got high infrastructure and low wealth relative to other people even within the country. We know this from our experience because we're sort of stormwater professionals. So we know where you've got urban environments. Generally, there's infrastructure that is perfectly made to get stormwater and associated pollution away from these urban population areas or urban environments as quickly and efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. And that away is essentially the waterways, the rivers, the bays, the oceans. Exactly. So trapping trapping the plastic between uh, where it's deposited on the side of the street and the ocean is an extremely important component of, you know, reducing the amount of plastic that enters the waterways and the oceans. Cool. So you establish these patterns and trends. Obviously, it's not just science for science's sake. So what are the sort of, I guess, management implications that you sort of would recommend based on your analysis? So essentially, what, what are the key actions that you think would be appropriate on, on a global scale or a local scale to actually do something about mitigating this marine debris problem? So we've found some patterns that where there is sort of strong prohibitions on certain items, you tend not to find those sorts of items. For example, in Africa, there's several countries now that have banded together to ban the use of plastic bags. So in those countries, you don't tend to find the same quantities of plastic bags as you do in other countries that have you know, comparable sort of socioeconomic factors, but without those plastic bag bans. So these sorts of rules are very, very effective at preventing litter. Schemes that encourage recycling, there's a number of schemes that encourage recycling. These tend to be effective as well. So one of the major findings of the Australia-wide survey, taking, you know, across Australia, you've got similar sorts of infrastructure available to dispose of plastic, similar demographics across the different cities. Some states within Australia have schemes such as the cash for containers scheme in South Australia, while others do not. So in this study itself, we didn't get to examine this scheme, but um, certainly the CSIRO Marine Debris Team has done previous work, uh, especially Denise as well as Kamar, on the effectiveness of those cash for containers schemes and have found they're extremely effective at preventing whole large containers um, at entering the marine environment. So things such as whole plastic bottles, 
which then go to break down into little fragments, such as the fragments that are ending up across the world's coastlines, especially in some of those hotspots like the Canary and Hawaiian Islands. So very, very effective um, schemes that incentivize recycling. Reduction in the first place is also a big scheme. Yeah, one one of the one of the overarching findings is that because there's so many local issues, you can actually look at specific areas and work out okay, what what is the problem here, and sort of work together with the population to target that problem. So whether that's the cigarette butts in southern Europe and northern Africa, perhaps those areas can sort of do some consultation to work out a scheme to prevent people or to incentivize people to stop just dropping their cigarette butts and dispose of them in bins instead. Perhaps that might be in areas such as the Philippines where you've got the um, food wrapper hotspots or some of the tropical countries where you've got the huge numbers of whole plastic bottles. So that might be a, a sort of an opportunity for cash for containers or other sort of incentivized schemes. But yeah, there's there's broad solutions that can be done internationally with reduction as well as local local sorts of things that mm-hmm. targeted or in Australia with the fishing line. Well, so just going to that, one of the things that we've spoke about in our pod, it's all very well to say, um, for instance, a lot of the fishing lines are coming down from Indo. Well, <clears throat> These little um, islands in the middle of nowhere with little to no money or infrastructure or anything, you know, they can't afford to sort of change. So one of the ideas that we sort of bounced around yesterday was, well, we know that the litter, we know the fish nets are coming down from Indo down to the top of Australia. Why doesn't the Australian government put money into helping these guys over in Indo to reduce that or to provide education, to provide some infrastructure so that they don't send them down in the first place. For instance, make it so if a ghost line is worth something to them. If they pulled out a ghost line, it might be worth a week's salary or two weeks' salary, whatever it is. But preventing it from even coming down and hitting Australia is far better than being up there trying to get these ghost lines out. And if you attack that across to, say, the study that you've done, you're right. You go over to Europe, everyone smokes cigarettes and flicks them everywhere, and it's just what they do. You go to you know different countries, and, and they've got, you know, over in Indo, the plastic wrappers and from their offerings they give every morning. It's localized issues. You've got to hit them with localized uh, solutions, I guess. But once, if you don't have that data, which, you know, you guys are obviously analyzing and producing some great work, then you don't know what's going on, do you? Yeah, exactly. You've got to know what the problem looks like before you can really make some good headway on solving the problem. And that's that's what CSIRO aims to do when we work with really, really good NGOs such as Ocean Conservancy and Paddy Aware on these big and fantastic data sets that they collect, helped by the millions of hands across the world picking up rubbish. Yeah. What you've described, Lauren, as well, is more or less the first or the most effective steps of the what we call the waste management hierarchy. This is something that Jeremy and myself go around in the country or we used to at least for pre-COVID. Basically, for people who aren't familiar, the most important, the most effective, cheapest uh, way of mitigating plastic pollution in our oceans and waterways is avoiding. So if we can ban, progressively ban single-use plastics nationally, globally, which we are doing, that's the most, that's the best solution. Yeah, don't obviously, use it. Yeah. Don't use it or, or ban it. And obviously, uh, next step is reducing the use through education, providing alternatives, et cetera. 
next step in the uh, hierarchy is re, you know enhanced recycling. You know, and and we know from CSIRO research that that is actually really effective at reducing plastic loads discharged downstream. Ocean Protect full disclosure: we do we do treatment, we do stormwater treatment, and obviously in our urban environments, as which you sort of referred to before, you know, we put in various devices to intercept that pollution. Ideally, we we wouldn't we wouldn't be needed. People wouldn't let a Etc. But uh, until that day comes, and I hope it, do- it has comes one day, uh, we'll put in our devices and clean them out and stop pollution from entering our waterways. The least effective, the most expensive step of that hierarchy, which seems to get a lot of attention, is cleanup. So you would have seen the likes of Boy and Slat with his ocean cleanup and uh, I guess Pete Kalinsky with his uh, CBIN project, etc. And obviously the various amazing individuals who volunteer their time to do the cleanup activities. That's it's an incredible effort and it's still a very important function, but I think historically we've just given too much emphasis on cleanup. Obviously, to your point, based on the, the analysis that you guys done, we've got to do far more further up the waste management hierarchy. Yeah, there's. Um, I would like to sort of highlight Hobart City Council um, as mm. an example of a lo- local yeah. government area that's taken this approach. Hobart City Council very recently has, I think it was Australia's first local council area to enact a ban on single-use plastics with takeaways and things like that. Mm. And we haven't done any study on this yet, but certainly anecdotally, I've noticed less plastic in and around the Hobart CBD compared to what there used to be. This was enacted by one of the councillors who was expressing more or less uh, what you were just describing just then. He said, if you can imagine the plastic pollution problem as an overfilling bath. You've turned on the tap <laughs> and the bath is overflowing. This is this is plastic pollution entering the waterway. So if you walked into that scene, what would you do? Would you get the mop and start mopping up the water or would you turn off the tap? So <laughs> Jeremy and me are laughing because we use that anecdote all the time. And I suspect, I think you're talking about Councillor Bill Harvey. Bill Harvey. Yes, I am, um, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I suspect Councillor Bill Harvey is actually pinched from us. No, no, <laughs> no but we've, we've, he, he's been such a great advocate. He's, yeah. um, you know, the city of Hobart signed on to our yeah. Zero Little Ocean campaign. I know he's done a hell of a lot of work down there and um, shout out to him because you need people like Councillor Harvey out there speaking their mind and actually making real change. So I'm pleased you gave a shout out. I was sitting there going, was that Bill? Was it Bill? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had Bill lined up very, one of our first yeah, podcasts. Where is he? And uh, I, I can't recall why it got, it got postponed for some reason and we just haven't got a, a new, new date basically, but we keep on meaning to get him on. But it just shows you though, like, you know, Bill Harvey was, I guess, inspired into action and, and to drive change based on, you know, someone influencing him with appropriate science. And for me, time and time again, I see this coming out of the CSIRO. You guys are producing great science that is inspiring change and leading to real tangible outcomes to better protect our oceans and waterways, which for my total uh, shout out to CSIRO and Lauren and, and Denise Hardesty and Chris, et cetera, all you guys do amazing work. The best thing about it is that no one actually believes anyone until the CSIRO say that that's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think it's, just it's, us. Not, it's, not, it's not quite peer-reviewed until it's come out from the yep. CSIRO, right. you know. But no, no, honestly, the, the, the tireless work by uh, yourself and your team, headed by obviously the almighty Denise, you, you're changing the way people look at the problem by showing them how big the problem is. And I think that's key. You mentioned there's another one in regards to the container deposit scheme. I know anecdotally, they work. You see them all around. Mm. We've got our great friends at Tomra. Wherever they are, you can see it reducing in the urban uh, urban environment. And from what we know, that means there'll be less 
pollution transported down stormwater drains. So um, I can't wait for that to come out. Who's who's writing that paper? Oh, that one's already out. So um, oh. Kamar Schuyler is um, the lead author of that study, um, and she's also in the marine debris team headed by Denise. So you can find that. And I think there may be a conversation article about that one as well. It's come out a few years ago now, so she's yeah done a good job there. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. I mean, that, but these are all important because then you take that science or you take that back and you communicate that back to the community and a sense of camaraderie of, of, of we're doing this together is very important. People need a pat on the back. People do. They need a, hey, yeah. well done. The waterways are cleaned up because you're taking your, your containers back. Keep going. And that's where the positive messaging coming out of, yeah. of, of science is really important. One of the nice things about plastic pollution as an environmental issue, if there is a nice thing about plastic pollution as an environmental issue, is that it's an issue that everyone can do something about. We can all take steps in our own lives to reduce. We can all encourage to recycle. And if you see sort of plastic out and about in the environment where it shouldn't be, you can very easily pick it up, put it in a bin and make that direct contribution to the cleanliness of the environment and the reduction in the opportunity for wildlife to even encounter that plastic in the first place. I'll take it one step further, Lauren, and we've said it many times. Plastic is is, uh, our friend. Plastic has given us a voice because up until the plastic social media revolution, let's call it five, six years ago or 10 years ago when we saw the albatross check. I mean, without people physically seeing what we are doing to this planet, it's people weren't going to do anything about it. And for stormies like Brad and myself, who you know, plus 20 years, plastic, we never looked at plastic and went, oh, that's, um, that's the least of our worries. We honestly did, didn't we? We were like, hold on, there's all these other things that people don't see, nitrogen, phosphorus, heavy metals, you know, mercury, all these other contaminants that people don't see that are potentially far more harmful than plastic. For us, plastic is easy. You physically screen it. You get a screen, you make, this, make sure the screen's small enough to, to pick up your microplastics, and you screen it out of stormwater. To us, we found that easy. But the soluble forms of pollution, that's where we sort of, where we concentrated on. And that's too hard to explain to a store, to explain that to the, you know, the normal human being out there and going, hey, mate, don't wash your car uh, on the pavement, put it on the grass. Oh, mate, what, the stormwater's clean. Yeah, if some of the other contaminants and um, environmental pollutants were visible size range mm. and multicoloured, I think we'd have a very different approach to um, pollution of the environment. Yeah, and, and, and it gave us a voice as an industry because we could clearly go, hey, guys, well, this is, hey, look, look what else is coming with this plastic. Look what else. So it, it gave us a voice as an industry, but it also gave us a wake-up call to all of humanity. I mean, through this podcast, we've learned, yeah, there's mountain-sized or avalanches of plastic occurring at the bottom of the ocean. It's raining plastic up in the desert of Utah. Plastics, you know, everywhere, but without people physically seeing it and performing the great science to revert back and bring that back to people like myself and, and Joe Blow and whatever, people just wouldn't care. Now, I guarantee if you did a survey now, people would be very concerned by plastic in the ocean. If you did that survey five years ago, it wouldn't even be on the list. 
Would, I've would certainly seen, yeah, the attitudes changing, especially among younger generations. I can remember myself as a school student picking up rubbish on the school oval was a punishment that people did, and nobody <laughs> nobody thought anything. Or, uh, no, nobody enjoyed it in the slightest. It was what you did to you know to punish kids for talking in class or whatever transgression they'd done. But um, <laughs> oh, I've got some funny memories of of uh, not myself being the goody two shoes I was, but other kids having to spend their lunch times picking up rubbish on the school oval. But now I go into schools to give talks sometimes and you've got little kids who actually have plastic picking up clubs and they oh, voluntarily wow. go out and pick up the rubbish because of their concern about sort of that rubbish entering the environment and, and entering the food chain. So mm. it just really shows how attitudes have evolved over time. Attitudes and also funding. Yes, Let's face yeah. it, guys, none of this great research goes on without funding. And the CSIRO and the Australian government obviously funding. But we're talking, shout out to all the not-for-profits, all these people that are involved with not only this study but other study. You need money to, to fund them. So as more and more data comes out and more and more studies come out, then people go, oh, shit, this is a real problem. Then they chuck more money at the research. So it's sort of a snowball effect. I feel like, you know, every week there's something else coming out about how much microplastics we've had. It's only because people are studying it for the first time. You know, we mm. traditionally we haven't done it. So it's exciting but also nerve-wracking. You know, what are we going to find out next? And it's certainly not science for science's sake. It's very much applied science that, that can actually lead to real effective actions. You know, it's one thing to be concerned about ocean health or plastic pollution. It's another thing to do something about it. But to do something about it appropriately and effectively, you do have to be informed by appropriate science. And again, that's what I see time and time again coming out of the CSIRO and other group, particularly in the last sort of couple of years. And for me, that gives me a lot of optimism because I can see change happening. To Jeremy's point, you know, more funding allocated to actually appropriately addressing this problem based on the science of you guys and others. And for me, that gives me a lot of optimism, you know, in terms of hope of, you know, associated with this issue, like you talk about, oh, there's, there's, there's some positives around plastic pollution, but one of the positives in my mind is the fact that it's actually one we, it's an environmental issue we can address quite easily and effectively and, and just cheaply and, and, and achieve massive uh, improvement and protection of our oceans and waterways. And for me, that's a real positive. That's great. Yeah, thank you very much for the support for yeah, CSIRO and the CSIRO Marine De Debris team from um, Ocean Protect, you guys, Brad and Jeremy, and also the platform to be able to talk to people here on the mm. podcast. I was going to say, it's got gone to the days of sort of just scientists you know, publishing a paper in a journal where that no one really reads. Like, a, I've got to get out and talk about it now, don't I? How I came across your paper as a like it was in the popular media, it was in the conversation, and then from there we reach out and set up a podcast chat. And so we're obviously communicating this scientific, uh, you know, these scientific findings to a sort of a larger audience that would otherwise uh, previously just would never have heard about this sort of stuff. And it really is important, especially if mm. you're sort of coming from a publicly funded institution, that the research findings that people's taxpayers' dollars come from, um, as well as um, when, when you donate to an NGO for one of these causes, certainly this particular research piece was co-funded between um, public uh, funding to the CSIRO, as well as donations people had made to Ocean Conservancy, donations people had made to Paddy Aware. It was a collaboration between the three organisations. Um, and the funding. So it is very important for us to be able to share the research findings uh, with, the, with the people that funded it. 
And look, if people want to find out more, I'll include a link to the show notes to yourself, Lauren, and your email, which I see is on the CSIR website. And obviously, the CSIR website has a whole bunch of resources. But look, we do have to probably uh, let you get back to it. But thank you so much for coming on our show today. It's been a wonderful chat. Learned so much. And I guess, secondly, well done on an amazing uh, bit of research. Total respect. Thank you very much. And thank you for the, sh- the shout out and the appreciation and also the yeah support from, from you guys and the opportunity to talk to people. We look forward to seeing what you come out with next. And um, <laughs> hey, um, keep up the great work. So uh, boom, boom, chat the room. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.